Hello and welcome to this week's Hey Podcast, where each week we're asking one of the speakers appearing at Hey 2021 to select their favourite moments from our archive. This week is the turn of writer, novelist and columnist Tamima Anam. Hello, I'm Tamima Anam and I am a novelist and also a self-confessed Hey superfan. I've been to Hay as a punter, as a writer, and I also even helped to put together a Hay festival in my hometown of Dhaka, Bangladesh. So I'm really thrilled to be here and to talk to you a little bit about my favorite Hay moments. The first one that I've chosen is um, from the first Hay festival I ever attended as a writer. It was 2012, and I had just published my second novel, and I was really nervous to be there. I remember someone in the green room mistaking me for a much more famous South Asian writer. And I remember saying to them, oh, I'm not that person. I'm nobody. (laughs) Um, So anyway, despite the fact that I was anonymous and slightly clueless, Peter Florence put me on stage with some really incredible minds. And I got to experience at that first festival what I like to call the hey bling moment. And the hey bling moment is when you're sitting on stage and the audience is completely dark. And at some point, the uh, the moderator, the chair, um, tells the, the tech person in the back to, 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 to put up the lights so that they can ask you questions. And in that moment, um, when the lights went up, I realized that there were like 500 people in that audience who had been sitting in silence listening to us talking on stage. And I'm not a religious person, but having that collective moment was really as close to church as I will ever get. So let me not belabor the point. It was Martin Rees, Helena Kennedy, Joan Bakewell, and we were all talking to Anita Anand. And the the little piece that I've chosen is actually an ode to Helena Kennedy. Um, I really think she is one of our most brilliant legal minds. And she's also has this incredible capacity to talk about everyday life within the construct of her very deep political engagement um, with human rights, with freedom of speech. And in this case, she's talking about the opportunities and also the challenges of technology. And I've just written a novel uh, called The Startup Wife, which is about technology. And this was 2012. And some of the things that she said, some of the warnings that she gave us were so prescient. So please enjoy this clip and enjoy the luminous Helena Kennedy. In my lifetime, I know, because I happen to be married to a surgeon, that uh, the advances in technology have absolutely radicalized uh, medicine. And, uh, and, I mean, people would say that surgery in the last 50 years has changed beyond recognition. And part of it's to do with the fact that there is now the use of lasers, there's now uh, um, the use of, uh, of surgical equipment that wasn't available then, um, the, the use of the microchip, the way in which you can, you can do heart surgery now that just wouldn't have been possible because you do microsurgery. And so uh, in, in many fields of medicine, uh, technological advances have radically changed um, the way that we live and what our, um, uh, our prognosis is for living. Uh, so, so there's all of that in terms of advances. 
Um, I think that uh, communications have been extraordinary and, and it does empower people because people know much more and there's no doubt that uh, um, you know, the revolution will be tweeted, but that the, the people are learning about the nature of the world and the people who uh, govern them in ways that they couldn't have done in the past. And so knowledge is much more available. So there are all those good things that we know about, the way in which the developing world has access to information and, uh, and, and it would have been impossible to do it cabling underground and now it's done by radio. Um, so what, what I feel is that you, we mustn't lose sight of that. But yes, of course, there are lots of pernicious, nasty elements to this. Um, I deal with the underbelly of great technological developments, um, and the underbelly of that is crime, and crime has been greatly facilitated by uh, the use of technology too, just in the same way that markets uh, have globalized and have been uh, furnished by te technological advancement, the electronic transfer of money, uh, communications made easy, ease of travel, all of those same things are used for bad purposes when people want them to be used for bad purposes. So I just think that's the nature of advance in our world, and then we have to cleverly devise ways of really making the good stuff outweigh the bad stuff and minimize the bad stuff as much as possible. I don't like the fact that people imagine that they're empowered by voting for Big Brother. And I hate it when I hear John Prescott saying that's how we all ought to be voting now, because I think it's mad. That democratic moment has to be about something more than sitting on your sofa and, uh, and somehow deciding that the person who smiles most on the telly um, is the person that you're going to vote for, rather than having a much more uh, careful kind of public debate. So I, 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 I think that, yes, there are bad things. Um, I think that it can't be beyond the wit of man to try to minimize the bad stuff. And I think that human, the human connection is always going to outweigh uh, connection that's done by technology. But I still think that the advances have been absolutely wonderful. The, the question refers to the spirit as well, which is a fairly esoteric Term. I mean, feel, feel free to define it when you answer this question, but is it shaping the human spirit or does the, the human spirit always shape the technology that it invents? Well, let me, let me take a, long, a really longer perspective on this because I basically think, as I'm sure everyone on the platform and everyone in the audience feels that there's something called the human spirit which perhaps we can't define, but we believe is eternally present within each human life. And I believe that will sustain humanity throughout every whatever technology arises. However, certain, certain things have not yet really begun to roll forward, one of which is communications. And the prospect of the way we will communicate with each other globally um, and between people's a great diversity around the globe, that that technology is relatively new and will become far more available to all of us at all times. I do think one of the ways the spirit expresses itself is in facial recognition and in eye-to-eye -eye contact, and we may move into a world where there is much less of that. And to that extent, I think that the spirit might well change rather than diminish, but I think it will go through a different sense of experiencing itself. Now my further reach is really one for Martin, but if, we, if technology brings on artificial intelligence and, and robots who can do the work we don't want to do, 
and which might then want to do work that they agree between themselves that they can do, this is a very long future, then how much spirit do robots have? And if robots are making decisions and developing technologies, might we lose our grip? I don't know. Well, let's, let's, let's put that away. We're sort of blurring two topics, and, and I don't mind that at all. Um, let's take Joan's point, first of all, on... on the, the robotic, the possible robotic future that we are hurling ourselves into. Is that something that you see is a problem? Yes. Um, can I make two points? First, on the communication point, clearly, if we have really good communication where you can see people's in high resolution, see their facial expressions, sp Skype or better, that's much better than telephone. But the main point is that uh, we in this country have been privileged, but if you're in India or somewhere like that, you've been tremendously disadvantaged until recently by slow communications. I mean, in science, for instance, um, when I was a student, I was lucky to work in a university where we got things by mail, we got the journals. An Indian student did not have that advantage, whereas 10 years ago, two Indian students made an important mathematical discovery. Within a day, there were special seminars being convened across America to discuss what they'd discovered. What a contrast with what would have happened to an Indian student 50 years previously. Surely we have to welcome that. So I think the communication has leveled the playing field in a gratifying way. Uh, turning now to uh, uh, Joan's point, um, if we ask about artificial intelligence, um, then the advances are very patchy. Of course, machines have been able to surpass human abilities in arithmetic for 30 years, since the time of the first hand calculator. And chess, uh, um, playing computers could beat the world chess champion Kasparov in the 1990s. A computer can now uh, uh, put up a fairly good show in the Turing test of uh, speaking as though it was a human being. But there's still a long way to go. Um, machines can't be designed to uh, move the pieces on a real computer board around as adeptly as a child can. And I was told by someone that we can't make a, a robot that can uh, uh, get a bundle of dirty washing, pick out the pieces, wash them, and then iron them. That's what we would really like to have. And they're a long way from that. And separate the whites from the colors, right. do all yeah. that, you know, yeah. and find the odd sock. That, that yes. is a real miracle, that, that, right. that yes, robot. Yes. But not but, yet, they no. <laughs> but, but, but of course, when they can do that, then there'll be a huge role for robots in uh, what we would call the caring professions, uh, doing that sort of thing. But also then, going back to the more fundamental ethical issue, uh, if these uh, robots become too like humans, then do we have to uh, be concerned about them as we would about other beings? We are concerned about uh, uh, ensuring that other humans fulfill their potential, even about some other animals. So should we have the same concern about robots? Should we be concerned if they are um, underemployed or bored? Should we? If we are concerned, then of course uh, they won't help us any more than people do. It just, just, um, for, for one, just, just, we'll put the robots to one side, but just on, on humans, but I'm very interested, to, uh, as a scientist of your reputation, do you have an understanding of what human spirit is? I mean, what, what, what is it to you? What, what, what does it, is it a notion that scientists are comfortable with? What is human um, spirit to a scientist? Well, I think I'm part of the human race. <laughs> um, and in, the, in the same way, so I don't think... Well, what, is, what, is, what do you think human spirit is? 
Well, I mean, I suppose we are talking about the uh, things that make us essentially human uh, and uh, give us our sense of aesthetics um, and of ethics over and above what we learn just as logical creatures. So, so the question, I mean, just bringing us back to the question, yes. it, it, it says, is progress killing the spirit? And let's, let's just take the word kill. Yes, um, yes, yes. Th there is a school of thought that believes that when you send drones to go and uh, carry out foreign policy or war is as easy to carry out as pressing a button when you are in a country far away from where the action is happening, where your people will not lose their lives, but you could blow swathes of people up. That does rob humanity of sure. something, a sense of culpability, a sense of, yes. of, of identifying. Mm -hmm. You believe that? I absolutely believe that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that if we're going to ask about what is the human spirit, we're really talking about the way in which human beings um, are capable of empathy. And, uh, and that, that business of empathy is one of the measures of our humanity. And the, uh, what happens with the, the business of the drones is, is, is the culmination of all those experiments that we know that, used, that, that took place about distancing people from those whom they tortured. And if you just were pressing a button and they're not in the same room and so on, then you're much more able to do it. And what's clear is that uh, the business of not facing, being face to face with the, the, your enemy uh, and being expected to be in at them to death does make a difference. And so I, I, I think that uh, um, that is one of the problems about, about the use of the machinery as the mediator. In 2011, Peter Florence and his team brought the Hay Festival to Dhaka, to my hometown. And for four years, we had this incredible annual event. It took place at the Bangla Academy, which has historically been a, a place of great scholarship and political activism um, in Dhaka. And we had events that they were bilingual, there were Bangladeshi writers, writers from South Asia, and obviously people coming from all over the world. The audience, which was mostly made up of university students who, you know, had probably grown up in Dhaka um, and had never had the opportunity to attend a festival like that, uh, the audiences were so engaged and so excited, and there was a real sense of magic and alchemy happening uh, at that festival. And, and I look back on it with a great deal of affection and nostalgia. And this particular event, it was, it was a small event. It was in one of the smaller venues, and it was a, an event about photography, and it was with Shohidul Alam and Muneem Wasif. And Muneem Wasif, uh, who's a really famous Bangladeshi photographer, um, was talking to about a book that he had just published about Puran Dhaka, which is the old part of Dhaka city. Um, and he's talking to his mentor, Shohidul Alam, who is a world famous photographer and uh, political activist. Um, and it's this great moment of intimacy between a teacher and his former student. And I love that Shohidul is very frank about Munem and says he was a very angry young man uh, who had a habit of being very loud. Um, but he gives him a lot of props. Um, he talks about how this body of work is going to really um, stand the test of time. Um, and my favorite moment is when he says in Bengali, um, can you bring up the photo of the two people arguing? Um, and this argument captures something of the spirit of old Dhaka. And this clip captures something of the spirit of the Hay Festival in Dhaka, which is why I wanted to share it with you. Well, thank you, Wasif. It's, it's a delight to be in the company of two people I have a great deal of admiration for, uh, and I've worked very closely with over a long period of time. Um, I'll 
actually suggest you touch this book. Because, you know, we, we live in this age where there are iPads and things on the net and so much is available online. I think books still have a very special space. Um, you hold a book, you touch a book, you smell a book, you curl up against a book, and it has a very, very different relationship with the reader than, you know, uh, I, I sort of think, you know, if, if I gave a book to a kid five years, ten years from now, they'd take the book and probably flick with their fingers expecting the pages to turn because that's, that's what they've grown up in. But this really has a very, very different feel. And particularly, I, I, I mean, you should take your time to fondle this book, if that's the right word to use. And while um, I wouldn't advocate it, this is such a lovely book, I think one might be forgiven for stealing it. Uh, um, but uh, let me go back to the artist himself. I, I think, you know, uh, as a teacher, I've, I've watched him over a long time as a colleague, as a friend. Uh, the relationships have changed and evolved. Uh, one of my concerns as a teacher is that the pedagogic process can be very damaging. Um, and you take many people who have different skills, different abilities, and you take them through a process. But one of the things one has to do is be very careful that in the process of teaching, if there is such a word, you don't destroy the creativity that that person has. And that is sadly something that the teaching process has a habit of doing. You know, we, we start with, as children, we're curious, we're inquisitive, we're creative, we wonder, we question. And as we grow up, those are the very things that are beaten out of us. You know, don't ask too many questions. Be, uh, you know, respectful of adults and, you know, don't make too many waves. Um, don't be difficult. Yet, I, I think those are exactly the sort of things you want to be nurtured within people. There are people who are difficult. And Wasif is difficult, believe me. Um, uh, but it is that difficulty that you actually want to nurture because that is what makes him who he is. And, um, you know, this angry young man that I saw has morphed into, well, an angry young man. Uh, but he's a little bit quieter than he used to be. I mean, there was this situation when I was very worried because when you, when you used to hear Wasif speaking, it was almost as if he was shouting at you. He, he, he had this habit of, being very, very loud. And he wasn't, he could sometimes say very tender things, but he would shout them at you. Uh, and then you have to deal with uh, that aspect of it. But um, a couple of days back, I, I met a Bangladeshi gentleman, he, a nuclear, medical nuclear scientist who lived in Pittsburgh. And he mentioned that he lived in Pittsburgh. And all of a sudden, uh, it became very interesting for me because the word Pittsburgh might not mean very much to many people. To a photographer, particularly a doc documentary photographer, it's a very important word. I mean, one of the great photojournalists, Eugene Smith, had what he considered to be his unfinished work. Uh, he, for a huge segment of his life, he worked on Pittsburgh and produced a phenomenal body of work, which is perhaps uh, the most important photo essays uh, we've come across. And in that sense, I think what we're looking at 
is a body of work which I believe will make old Dhaka something that will be preserved in the history of photography because we will know it for a body of work that was produced there. There are people who live in Dhaka, old Dhaka. Potash has actually grown up in old Dhaka. I'm a Dhakaite, but I've never lived in old Dhaka as such. I know the place, and as Wasif mentions, there is those elements of exoticism. There are people who go there for all the quirky things you find. But I think one needs to understand this place. And I haven't come across anything else that comes remotely close to getting to know this place as this body of work. And perhaps in times to come, when someone says, I come from old Dhaka, people will remember this body of work called belonging, which is which will be perhaps the epitome of old Dhaka. I'll come back to the book because, um, you know, he showed it there. In a way, this projection doesn't do it justice. You do need to see the pictures themselves in the book. It's very beautifully printed. It's gorgeously printed, uh, the paper, the tactile quality. But there are things within it which I think um, is very special. And as you look through it, there is a tenderness throughout the work, uh, a very gentle, loving look, a particularly way of seeing, which is interesting. And as, as artists, we, we tend to think of certain aspects which produce what we call a signature, um, a stamp, a particular artistic style which, which one is recognized for. Here we certainly have, uh, in Wasif's work, a very clear signature which comes through, and that pervades every page of the book. Um, certainly it's no exotic approach to it, but there's an immediacy and energy. And if you look at individual frames, I think what is very interesting is the energy within the frame, including things at the corner, things that jut in, things, uh, the outer focus elements of the pictures. Uh, are a fascinating aspect of it. And he does use, there's a lot of blurring, there, there are things that come out sharp, there are things that are not, and things, those layers that he was talking about allow you to step within the frame from one element to another. And it is the stepping stones themselves which I find very, very interesting. There is a very in-your-face presence. Um, in Old Dhaka, you can't really stand away from anywhere. Uh, you don't have that space. You can't it's not a long lens space. You, you have to be in there. And what he does very beautifully is get in right in your face in terms of that, the spaces we consider personal spaces in some cases. Yet it's not an intrusive presence. There's a picture in the book which isn't here. Um, it's an altercation, an argument. Uh, one person very angry at another person, someone on the side. And you realize this photography is right in that space. There's, there's this tension, very intense tension going on in that frame. The photographer's in there, but that photographer's invisible. And finally, Adaf Suef. Like so many people around the world, I fell in love with Adaf's second novel, The Map of Love, which I've returned to again and again, and I think is really a truly magnificent novel. She's published a lot since then, fiction and nonfiction, and she's also the founding chair of PALFEST, the Palestine Festival of Literature. And given recent events, I thought it would be really wonderful to hear from her um, about the importance of that festival and what it means. And I think 
it's really a testament to Adaf's commitment, both to her identity as a writer and also to her identity as a political activist and a, a public intellectual, that she has been so steadfastly committed to this festival and has brought it back to Palestine year after year. And I hope that she will someday be able to do that again. The Palestine Festival of Literature. Um, we sort of started that um, in 2008. So this is, as, as you said, it's, um, it's our 10th anniversary. And I should say, actually, that the organizing and the delivering is now and has, for the last several years, been mainly done by the uh, young team. I'm chair of the board, and I, and I do, of course, help and work, and I kind of mother the festival on the week that we travel through, through Palestine, but all the, um, the organizing and directing and admin is, is done I mean, there. You know, we complain here when it's been a rainy day and the car park's a bit <laughs> muddy. I mean, the obstacles you face and have faced in the past, I mean, they're pretty amazing, aren't they? Um, yeah, basically, uh, just for those who don't know, the, the idea that came to us was, um, I mean, looking for ways as people who who write or who work with culture in general, looking for ways to, to kind of ameliorate or influence for the better the situation on the ground. Um, we thought that if we, took, if we took artists and writers from the West to go and work in Palestine to do literary readings, seminars, workshops in universities and so on for one week, um, and they would have the, ex you would be giving them a unique experience. You would be enabling them to live the experience of, of living like a Palestinian um, under occupation for one week. And you would be giving the Palestinians exposure to um, world-class uh, artists and, and events. And then basically everyone would go their own way. They had the material, they could do what they wanted with it or, or not. So what that meant really was, was um, several... I won't say constraints, but ways of defining how we, would, how we would conduct the festival. And so one thing that was very clear, for example, was that we would not avail ourselves of um, the, the privileges that come with carrying a foreign and particularly a Western passport. So we would travel as a Palestinian with a West Bank ID would travel. And that meant, for example, not using the airport, going in through uh, Jordan on the... Uh, Allenby crossing, and also going through checkpoints. Um, the other thing was that, that basically because of the checkpoints, it's difficult for people to move from town to town. And so we decided that it would be Palfest that would move to its audience. And so we became kind of like a, like a circus, or a, we call it a cultural roadshow. So we open, for example, in Ramallah, as we did two weeks ago. We open in Ramallah on Saturday night, Sunday morning, it's pack your bags on the bus, and it's on to the next place. And so in the course of six days, it's Ramallah, Jerusalem, uh, Jenin, uh, Al-Khalil, Hebron, Nablus, Bethlehem, and it's on the move every day and um, meeting students at universities and doing events. So it's quite challenging. Just to give you an idea, Michael Palin, in the way only he can uh, say it, and uh, you know, he's, he's one of the contributors to this book of essays, by the way, um, says, you know, for some reason, I, I can't remember when he went, but he said, for some reason, our, our stalls of books, cakes, and tea were, were, were deemed to be a security threat. And, that, and on that occasion, it was, it was closed down. I mean, so, it's, so it, it, you know, 
definitely, it's not hay, that's, that's for sure. No, and there was one point, um, I think it was three years ago, when we had a closing event in Silwen, which is right next to Jerusalem, and basically there was trouble and there was tear gas, and it was either turn back and not have a closing event, or walk through the tear gas. So we walked through the tear gas, and um, one of the authors, uh, who was American, and I won't say who he was, but he was, he was like really... So I gave him half an onion, which is what you do. You put an onion to your nose, and that kind of uh, neutralizes. The, and uh, he just took it, and then he went, oh, it's an onion. I, we can't swear, can we? No. So it's Preferably not. Onion. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. All right. You, you said the idea was to take all this talent um, to and take it to Palestine, to the Palestinian people. And there's an argument, though, in there, I think, about whether that works or not. At least that's the way I read it. So I'll, let me quote um, Michael Palin again. He says that um, through writing, we can share universal values, so celebrate universal values in, in Palestine. And then there's the poet Remy Kanazi, and he's sort of, I hope I've got this right, mm. he says, um, the artists building bridges between what he calls apartheid and normalization, you serve an agenda that rebrands colonialism as enlightened liberalism. So you, on the one hand, you've got people saying, no, this is a very good thing that we take literature there. And then, as I understand it, Kanazi's saying, hang on a minute, I mean, you know, you're the sort of person who's, who's we describe as a bridge. Uh, and he's saying, well, hang on, are you doing the right thing? This is, this is really tricky and subtle, and it is worth really spelling it out, because we come up against it, or we have to deal with it all the time. Remy Kanazi is a good friend, and he has been on Palfest. But that's what I meant by you have to be very careful how you do this, because I personally believe that it is true that, that engaging in what has become liberal bridge building, sort of let's all have peace and love each other, it doesn't work. It's been happening for decades and the situation on the ground is getting worse and worse and worse. So the point of Palfest was really to work with the Palestinians, to take these authors, these writers to the Palestinians, to contribute to Palestinian cultural life under occupation and then to allow them to make up their own minds what was happening. So the bridges that Palfest is building is between the world on the outside and the Palestinians. And we've been asked, we were asked, we used to be asked in the first three or four years, why don't you bring Israel into it? Why don't you bring Israeli authors? Uh, exactly. Yeah? And our response is very clear. We're coming from the outside. It is not our job to force anything down the Palestinians' throats. We do not agree that every time the Palestinians are mentioned in a Western context, they are seen through the prism of Israel. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a case of seeing them through the prism of Israel. I mean, Peter's talking about it just now. It's, 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 it's a place where you can, you can talk without fear. That's what literature festivals are about. I mean, what harm would there be in having, well, Israeli peace activists, for example, could be there. Israeli peace activists, absolutely anybody is welcome to come and attend our events. But to be up on a stage? But to be up on a stage, no, because basically there is an issue of that then what you're doing becomes a way of saying that there is a liberal democracy out there that is actually... Uh, really fine, and there you are. Look, people can talk. Yes, people can talk, but meanwhile, settlements are being built. 
and people are being killed and people are being imprisoned and so on. So in a way, you're providing cover for that. So what we said was that we were happy to use our personal contacts in Palestine to facilitate the visit of any Israeli author, artist who wanted to visit. We would put them in touch with Palestinians in the cultural field, and they can organize that with, together I with themselves. I don't quite understand, Adef, why, why they couldn't be there at Palfest as part of it. Because, because, because then... That's what these festivals are about. No, it isn't, really. It isn't. If you have a situation, if we were sitting here in Hay, okay, and surrounding this tent, there were armed forces belonging to, let us say, um, I don't know, uh, X, Y, Z, right? And then somebody from the X, Y, Z group wanted or was, you know, to come in and have a normal kind of happy type of discussion while their soldiers were out there and while their soldiers were killing people and were taking people's land just, just over there, right? Now, and this person here has not declared their position, and they're in a position to benefit, in fact, from, from all, the, you know, all the, the system that is being used to oppress us within Hay, then I think that it wouldn't be fair for somebody coming from the outside, coming now from Australia, to say, look, you have to have this person in here with you, and you have to accord him um, a hearing, and you have to pretend, really, that you're all on level ground, that you're all equal. You so, are so, not so the equal. bridge you're building, I, I'm, I want to take, go, go back to what Rami Kanazi was saying, the bridge you're building is between the West, if I can call it that, and Palestinians, rather than between Palestinians and Israelis. Yes, absolutely. It's okay. not my job to build a bridge between Palestinians and Israelis. And what about Kanazi's point, that just even within that limited aim that you're doing, that what you're doing is somehow normalizing the situation. No, that you're wasn't... taking these authors through, through the checkpoints, you're taking them through the one bridge that they're allowed to okay. cross and so on. Um, I, just to be fair, I don't think that that is Remy's point at all. Okay. But it is a point that is being made, and that is another way in which, of course, Palfest is sometimes um, attacked. And this year in particular, because Palfest was on the background of the Palestinian hunger strike. And so everything was sort of ratcheted up. And it was, Which, it, by the way, I think has ended today. Quite, it ended today. They just reached an agreement this morning. Tamima will be at Hay 2021 on Thursday the 3rd of June, talking about her new book, The Startup Wife. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. And you can hear thousands of other recordings over on the Hay Player on our website. <laughs>